Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. So you want to know what I'm grateful for? Go ahead, ask me. Hey, Jim, what are you grateful for? Well, let me tell you what I'm grateful for. At the moment, I'm like a walking Petri dish. Uh, steroids and antibiotics and lots of Tylenol just to keep me going at this point. And yet, I was able to pick up the phone after my doctor appointment on Monday. I called Tom and I said, you know, I've always told you to have a message in your back pocket. Always be ready. And he said, yeah, I've got something that I've been working on. And I know that if I have to lay down, that Tom and Steve and Micah are both willing and capable of standing here. And that is a great comfort to me. I have often argued that... uh, The church is obviously a whole lot more than any one person, and that if God gathers his sheep, he's going to feed his sheep, and he's going to do that through whoever it is that he has ordained to stand here for that night. And so I'm very grateful that Tom was perfectly willing. I had him on standby, and then I called him today, and I said, well, I do believe I'm going to be there just because... I take this work really seriously. This is my job. And if there's any way to do it, I'm going to be there to do it. And so uh, I'm very grateful that God allowed me to be here to do it. Better living through modern chemistry. I'm grateful for that. Uh, The only thing I am not grateful for at this point is Steve, who I blame for, (laughs) for my sinus infection. He came up to me on Sunday and said, you know, I've got a sinus infection. And Monday I was at the doctor and she said, you know, you've got a sinus infection. So, I think yours came before mine, though. Chances are. I've been fighting this thing for weeks and I kept writing it off as allergies. And then finally it reached the point where the headaches just got so bad. I went, something's actually wrong here. I should go have this checked. Chapter 21 of the book of Proverbs. Last week, we got through the first four verses. Really made some headway in this chapter. We made it through four verses and really talked about the sovereignty of God that is declared by Solomon. So we're going to start tonight in verse 5. And from this point through the majority of the rest of this chapter, Solomon is going to speak a lot about what an evil man is, what defines a contentious person, what defines a scoffer. Sometimes he's going to mention honest men, wise men, but usually in contrast with the evil men, with the scoffers. And so I think it's interesting that after spending four verses Declaring the sovereignty of God, and after us looking into the sovereignty of God last week, now we're really going to hone in on some of the things that we just talked about on Sunday, the depravity of human beings. 
And those two ideas, those two concepts, are difficult theologically unless you understand that God, in his sovereignty, not only allowed for sin and depravity and evil to exist in his world, but that the evil and the depravity and the sin in this world actually serves his greater purpose. If evil, sin, depravity did not serve his greater purpose, it wouldn't exist. But it exists in his world because he has decreed that it will exist. And he has a purpose for it. That purpose, we argue about theologically back and forth. Various different theologues have written great tomes and books to try to explain why evil exists in a world that belongs to a good and an omnipotent God. I mean, after all, if he is all good, all righteous, and all holy, and has all the power, how is it that evil exists in the world? The simple reality is it exists because God determined that it was going to exist. Now, how can we prove that the evil that exists in the world serves the purposes of God? Well, we can prove that by the fact that when you get to the book of Revelation, the evil ceases to exist that God actually stops the evil. He actually puts Satan into an abyss, ultimately into a lake of fire, that he casts the evil people into outer darkness and ultimately into the lake of fire that was created for the devil and his angels. And ultimately in the new Jerusalem, the holiness of God breaks out in such a widespread way that the whole of the environment is enlightened by God and his holiness so that it overwhelms the people who are living in the New Jerusalem. Well, okay, that proves that, number one, God can do that. Mm-hmm. And number two, he can do it whenever he wants. So if he hasn't done that yet, if he hasn't produced absolute holiness in his creation yet, that's because the way the world is right now serves his purpose. So, again, Solomon started this chapter by talking about the absolute sovereignty of God over every man, every man's ways, every man's desires. And yet, at the same time, he could talk about the evil of men. So we, on this past Sunday, said that God is absolutely sovereign. That is the beginning of all understanding of the God of the Bible, understanding that he is absolutely sovereign. And yet, when we talk through the doctrines of grace... The first of those doctrines of grace starts with, and men are depraved, and men are evil. And once you understand that contrast, God is sovereign, men are depraved, then all the other doctrines that we believe in terms of God being gracious and in terms of God being the sole provider of everything necessary for salvation, those ideas just fall into line. Because if God is all good, all holy, and all sovereign, and has all the power, and man is nothing but evil continually, then everything else we believe about how men are saved just falls into place. It has to be election. It has to be grace. It has to be an atonement that God did on purpose for particular people. And those people cannot resist a sovereign God who saves them. So it's just interesting to me providentially that the thing we're studying right now on Sunday mornings and what we're reading right now in Proverbs just happens to dovetail so very well. 
And it proves yet again, it is evidence yet again, that the theology of the Bible, wherever you look, Old or New Testament, the theology of the Bible is consistent. It keeps telling the same story. And why does it keep telling the same story and the same theological outlook, no matter where you look? It's because the whole Bible has one author. And it starts at the beginning of Genesis with the fall and the destruction of men, and it ends at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, with the absolute holiness of God breaking out among mankind. And everything in between is the story of God's redemptive purpose from the fall of man to the breakout of God's holiness among all mankind. So once you get that big picture, you can really understand the whole theology of the Bible and why it's laid out the way it is. And Proverbs is sort of right dead center in the middle of all of that. Verse 5 then of Proverbs 21. The plans of the diligent, the NASB says, lead, but the plans of the diligent surely are an advantage, or they surely lead to an advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. Once again, Solomon is contrasting the willingness to get up and do the work the willingness to go do the things that, that are necessary in order to accomplish good things in this world versus the lazy man, versus the man who is a sluggard, the man who is just desirous of having things come to him without any effort. The contrast in verse 5 is between the one who actually plans and the one who does things hastily. And so Solomon is saying... If you're diligent, if you're willing to do the work, that's really good. But just doing the work is not always going to produce the outcome that you're looking for. You also have to have a plan. Mm -hmm. Now, the Bible says things like this throughout. Jesus himself talks about a man who goes to build a tower without having a plan. We know that if you're going to build a house, if you're going to build any kind of structure, you don't start with a brick. You don't start with nails and a hammer. You start with a plan. What is this going to look like? You start with a blueprint. Starting with a blueprint is advantageous. The person who just starts laying bricks without knowing what he's doing is not going to end up with a structure of any real value. The guy with the plan has the advantage. Okay, well, Solomon takes that building idea and says that's the way all of life works. Mm -hmm. If you're diligent, if you're willing to do the work, but you also stop before you do the work and have a plan, he says that's an advantage. Now, the advantage is in contrast with surely coming to poverty. So the advantage, obviously, is that you will be advantaged in every way. Not only are you going to have sufficient income, you're going to have sufficient food, you're going to be, be able to provide for your loved ones, you're also going to have the social advantage of being somebody that other people look up to, that somebody listens to, that other people listen to. So the plans of the diligent surely lead to advantage. But everyone who's in a hurry to just go get something done, everyone who is hasty, comes surely to poverty. Notice also that twice the word surely is used in that verse. 
it's surely an advantage or it's surely going to lead to poverty. What's the difference between one surely and the other surely? The difference between the two surelys is whether you plan or whether you're hasty. And we've seen that so many times. Solomon has said that the fool speaks before he thinks. The wise man will stop and think before he gives an answer so that he knows that his answer is wise and appropriate. The person who is foolish will rush right in. But the wise person will stop and think about whether the things he is doing actually make sense. So Solomon, one more time, is advocating for stop and think. Because thinking makes the difference between having an advantage, having things work out in your favor, and coming to poverty. Verse 6 then says, Tom, if you would, go back to Proverbs 13.11 for just a moment. Because verse 6 says, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue. Okay, he's obviously talking about the foolish person. He's talking about the unwise person. He's going to get himself gain, but he's going to do it through chicanery. He's not going to do it through an honest day's toil, through work, through the advantage that comes with planning. Instead, he's going to get his treasures by lying. Now, what does Proverbs 13.11 say? Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But Wealth whoever, gained hastily will dwindle. Go ahead. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So there's the contrast again. The person who gathers little by little, who goes to do the work every day, who gains every day, who has the advantage every day, in the end, he's going to have a treasure that he's built up over time. But a person who gets it hastily, the person who doesn't have a plan, the person who gets his treasure by lying to other people, he says that is a fleeting vapor. Not only is it a vapor, which means that it has absolutely no substance to it, but it's a vapor that disappears quickly. It just evaporates on you. It's a fleeting vapor. And he says... Doing it that way, gathering your riches by lying, is actually the pursuit of death. Now, when Solomon takes the time to say that something is the pursuit of death, he's using some of the most dramatic verbiage he can find to say that this does not lead to life. It leads to the opposite of that. It leads to ending up not only impoverished, but spiritually impoverished. Look down at verse 16 for just a minute, and you'll see him use this phraseology one more time. It says, a man who wanders from the way, in other words, the man who wanders away from the way of God, from the wisdom of God, a man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Is there any darker phrase than that? The assembly of the dead. In other words, you're either going to remain in the correct path. You're either going to remain in the way that leads to eternal life. You're either going to remain in the way of understanding and wisdom. But if you wander away from that and go chasing after your own way, your own ego, your own lying wealth, 
If you go chase after that, when you die, you're going to end up with the assembly of the dead as opposed to the assembly of the ever living. Get the contrast? So if Solomon is willing to talk about the assembly of the dead, then what does he mean when he says that treasure you get by lying is actually a fleeting vapor and the pursuit of death? He's saying it's like making a reservation to keep your place in the assembly of the dead. It's a way that leads to ultimate, to spiritual death, to judgment before God and not leading to life. Verse 7 then. The violence of the wicked will drag them away because they refuse to act with justice. Now that word violence right there, I think is being used as an adjective. It is describing the wicked people because wicked there is the subject. And so the violence, that characteristic of violence that you find in wicked people is ultimately going to drag them away. I can only assume that the dragging away is a reference to being taken away from the proper path, what we just read. The man who wanders away from understanding. How does somebody wander away from genuine wisdom and understanding? Well, the violence that is in them is going to drag them away. That violence, then, is a state of mind. The wicked person, by virtue of the fact that they are wicked, can't have a righteous mind, can't think right and proper things. And in fact, that's what Solomon says by way of contrast. He says it's because they refuse to act with justice. They're not going to be just. They're not going to be fair. They're not going to be honest. They're not going to treat people properly. They're going to look down on the poor. They're going to take advantage of anybody that they can take advantage of because there is this violence in their mind that doesn't allow them to think in the ways of righteousness and justice. By the way, if any of that sounds familiar, it's exactly what we were talking about on Sunday morning. We were talking about total depravity. And that if someone is actually totally depraved, then they don't have the ability to think holy, righteous, just things. So Solomon is really saying the same thing here that we see throughout the Bible about the anthropology of human beings. You are either saved, thereby given a new heart and a new mind, eyes to see, ears to hear, the ability to understand the good, holy, righteous things of God, or you're left to yourself, in which case your mind is nothing but depravity and violence. And that violent mind that the wicked have will drag them away from the path of justice and righteousness and goodness because they refuse to act with justice. The way, verse 8, the way, the actions, the pathway of a guilty man is therefore crooked. In other words, he doesn't walk a straight path. That analogy of walking a crooked path or a straight path should be pretty obvious by now. Solomon has used it a couple of different times. A man who walks a crooked path is somebody who is not upright, someone who is not honest. We still use that phraseology today. If somebody is 
not honest, not upright at their work, you might say, well, you know, he, he's kind of crooked. We still use that to speak of dishonest people. Solomon says the same thing here, and by way of contrast says, but he that is pure, he doesn't mean he that is morally pure, he means the one who is staying in the proper way. His conduct is upright. Now you can read that either way. You can either say, the man whose conduct is upright, it's because his mind is pure, because his mind is not a guilty mind, it's not a mind full of violence. So the contrast is the way, the walk of the guilty man is, of course, crooked, winding, bended, not straight. But as for the pure of mind, the pure of thought, the the wise man who has set himself on the ways of God, you're going to see that. It's going to be reflected in his conduct. His conduct is upright. So whether you want to say, because his mind is set on the wise and pure things, he therefore walks upright, or whether you want to say the man who walks upright is because he's had a change of mind, both of those are true. In the New Testament, rather than say his mind has gone from being violent to being pure, we would say he's been born again. We would say he's been regenerated. He's been made anew. He's been made refreshed. So the way of a guilty man is crooked, But as for the pure, his conduct is upright. Verse 9. So far, everything we have looked at, Solomon has said, man, man, the guilty man, the evil man, the crooked man, which will lead you women to think, well, then we're off the hook. Because so far, this has all been man, man, man. Now Solomon is going to comment on what it's like to be with a contentious woman. It is better to live in a corner of a roof, which means a very small enclosed place. We here in America, most of our houses have V-shaped roofs so that the rain can run off them and stuff. In the Middle East, roofs were much flatter, and you know that during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would often go up on their roof and they would make a little lean-to, a little temporary living place. So you could actually create a little habitation up on the roof. You might remember that Peter, when he was hungry, was up on Simon the Tanner's roof. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be up on the roof. Solomon says it's better to have a little tiny living space up on the roof of the house rather than to live in the house that is shared with a contentious woman. Now, people will read that and say, in a rather humorous way, see, a woman, a contentious woman, it's better to just be on the roof than to be in a wide house with a woman like that. But I think when you kind of look at the context here of everything that Solomon has been saying, as he's been contrasting the evil and the good, the violent mind and the changed mind, the pure mind, I think what Solomon's really getting at here is that rather than living with a contentious human, somebody who's always arguing, somebody who doesn't take the time to think, someone who's not considering her way before she gives an answer, that it's actually better 
for you, not only because it's less contentious, but it's just also if you're of a purer mind, it's better to live a life denying yourself luxury in your house if the cost of that luxury is living with somebody who's always at contention, who isn't wise, who isn't thinking about the things of God. So even though it's easy to kind of laugh at it and make fun of women and say, yeah, it's better to be on the roof than in the house with a contentious woman, which is true. I think we would all agree that's true. I think Solomon is getting at more than that, though. Solomon is saying consistently here that it is a better way to live, to think about what you're saying, think about what you're doing, to have that purity of mind rather than that violence of mind and by contrast contention and better stand against each other look at verse 19 he says basically the same thing it is better to live in a desert land okay this is even more than just going up to your rooftop this is now leaving your house entirely and going to live in a desert somewhere It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. That word vexing means, can mean confusing, can mean contentious, it can mean never satisfied, it can mean someone who you just think, what do you want? So it is better to actually live in a desert and have that mind that is stayed on God and stayed on the things of God why are you two there's way too much activity between you two she said just think how many of them Solomon must have been married to and I said it only takes one and then she hit you <laughs> and then she hit you I think all the women in the room should line up and hit you that's, that's kind of... now, I was going to point out there's a note in the New English translation about this quarrelsome wife that yes. says the uh, Septuagint has no reference to a quarrelsome wife but instead mentions justice in a common house which is in line with the point you were making yes. it's far broader than yeah it's not just poking at women <laughs> yeah. so then it is better to live in a desert land or it's better to live in a small place up on the roof of a house rather than with contentious vexing people so what does that tell you if you look at it through that lens then what we have argued over and over again continues to hold true which is that people don't change how often have you seen somebody let's say in this case a woman who is about to become engaged and then going to marry a man that you know for a fact he's not good for her. Everybody knows he's not good for her. This is not going to end well. Everybody can see it except her because she's just in love. And so she's willing to overlook the obvious signs that he's not going to be good for her. But everybody can see it. She doesn't see it because she likes projects as women do. She thinks She's going to change him. I have had that conversation with many, many young people before they've gotten married. I've said, now understand that the person you're looking at right now 
Is the same person seven years into your marriage, 15 years into your marriage? This is the person you are marrying. You're not going to change them. People don't change. Accept them for who they are. If you cannot accept them for who they are, do not marry them. Because people don't change. The only way that people change is if God changes them internally. But no amount of projecting, no amount of working on them, no amount of uh, punishing them or rewarding them for their behavior can change them. They are who they are. Therefore, rather than staying in a house trying to change a contentious person and thinking that your presence and your arguing and your fighting with them is somehow going to change the way they are, it's better to go up onto the roof and just live in a little place by yourself rather than continue contending with such an argumentative and vexing person. I think that's ultimately what Solomon is getting at more than just making fun of women. Verse 10, then. The soul of the wicked. Okay, he's been talking about the violence of the wicked in verse 7. He's been talking about the way of the guilty man. That's his actions. But now the inner man, the makeup of the person, the soul of the wicked, desires evil. Naturally, because he's wicked. Naturally, because he has violence in his mind. Naturally, because he is a godless person, he can't think about holy things, right things, just things. He can only think about wicked things. The soul of the wicked desires evil. That's all he knows how to desire. Remember this past Sunday again, we were talking about total depravity. And I said, using Leon as an example, And I said, it doesn't matter what he desires to do. He doesn't have the capability to do the things he might will to do. And I said that the will of all human beings is restricted by your capability so that your will is bound. In other words, human will left to itself is utterly free to sin, free to chase any evil thing free to chase every rotten, pernicious thing it can dream up. You've got that kind of freedom. But the freedom to choose uprightness, holiness, godliness, choose Jesus, you don't have that ability. Now that reality that you have the ability to choose evil things, but you don't have the ability to choose righteous things, was defined by Martin Luther as... You have the ability to choose from those things that are under you. In other words, you in your depravity, you in your evil, can choose from any of the evil things that are under you. But you don't have the ability to decide or to choose or to will those things that are above you. Those things are beyond your grasp. So whether you take Martin Luther's definition of it, or whether you take Solomon's definition of it, or whether you take the total depravity definition of it, the reality is human beings can only will the evil that is in their hearts. They can only will the evil that is in their minds. Sinners can only will 
to sin. That's the only ability you have. So here is Solomon again confirming the very theology we believe. The very theology that we teach and did just teach this past Sunday. Here is Solomon saying the soul, the inner man, the inner desires of the wicked desire evil. That's all they can desire. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. What he's saying there is when he looks at other people, he doesn't look at them favorably. He doesn't look on them kindly. He's not looking on his neighbor, someone living near him, his fellow countrymen. He's not looking at other people with a heart toward how he can benefit them or how he can help them. All he desires is evil, and therefore other people are no good in his eyes. Have you ever met somebody like that? As I'm speaking, there is this wry grin coming across Luann's face. So I know she's thinking of somebody at this moment. But have you ever met somebody that is just always mean to other people who actually considers everybody else to be beneath them? Nobody else is as good as I am. Pretty much all of us are like that when we get behind the wheel. Every other driver is an idiot, and we're the only good driver on the road. But Solomon is saying here, one of the indications of a wicked man, wicked internally, who desires only evil, the indication is the people he interacts with don't ever find any favor in his eyes. Now let's contrast that with what Jesus said. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, which is the absolute opposite of his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. If you are a person of wisdom, if you are a person of God, then you're going to look on other people and look for the the good, the beneficial, the favor that you can do for them, the benefit that you can be for them, and you look at them as somebody that is in the hands of the living God. And you're going to want to tell them the truth of their own depraved state and how they can be saved through Jesus Christ. You're going to want their best benefit regardless of who they are, which is why Jesus could even say to pray for those who viciously use you and spitefully use you. Ultimately, what you want for other people is their good. And you can only want their good if they are finding some kind of favor in your eyes. Solomon says the soul of the wicked desires only evil and his neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. That is Solomon's continued definition of what a wicked person looks like. Verse 11. When the scoffer is punished. Okay, so what's a scoffer then in Solomon's mind? Look at verse 24 for a minute. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. Okay, I think Solomon just defined what a scoffer is. Scoffer in the way that Solomon uses the word is equal with proud. And as you've heard me say a thousand zillion times now, it should be tattooed to your memory. The most often quoted sin in the Bible is pride. So here Solomon says proud, haughty, somebody who's looking down on everybody else who does not find his neighbor to be favorable at all. Somebody who is 
egocentric, full of himself, looking down on everybody else as worse than himself. That proud man, that haughty man, one of the other names he's called, is a scoffer. So, okay, now we have some idea what Solomon means when he says scoffer. And what does he do? He acts with insolent pride. Not just pride, but insolent pride. Arrogant pride. You can't tell him anything. You can't correct him. You can't steer him in the paths of righteousness because he already knows more than you do and he's not about to listen. Okay, that's Solomon's definition for a scoffer. Now we can go back and take a look at verse 11. When that kind of person is punished, the naive becomes wise. Becomes wise to what? Well, he becomes wise to what happens to scoffers. He becomes wise to what kind of punishment scoffers get. Scoffers who are evil in their soul, who are always looking for some kind of wickedness to get into, are ultimately going to be punished. And again, this is Solomon the king, the judge. He's the one who's going to be doling out the punishment. And so he says that when you do punish this kind of scoffer, this kind of insolent person, the naive who didn't know any better is going to become wise. That, oh yeah, if you follow in that kind of path, that's the kind of punishment you're going to end up with. Or it can be, oh yeah, that's the kind of punishment that scoffers get. So it's going to smarten them up. It's going to bring them to the realization that the way of a scoffer is not a beneficial way to be. The second half of verse 11 says, but when the wise is instructed, and I have to think here that the word instructed and the word punished are analogous to each other here. He's drawing a connection between the two. Since the punishment is a way of instructing the naive, when the wise are instructed, he understands. He gets it. He gains knowledge. Okay, so the contrast is between an insolent scoffer who you can't teach anything. When he gets punished, the naive become wise, but the implication is the scoffer learns nothing because he's insolent. He can't be taught. He can't be instructed. He's too full of himself. He already knows it all. On the other hand, when the wise are instructed, they receive knowledge. They get it. They, they get understanding. Well, Solomon is saying here that if you continue in that insolence, you're going to become a haughty scoffer. You're not going to be able to be taught anything, and you're just going to end up continually being punished. The result of that punishment is that the naive, the ones who don't know any better, are going to be instructed. They're going to learn something. And among those who have the ability to understand, the wise is going to be instructed and he's going to receive knowledge. Verse 12. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked. Now it would be easy to read that phrase, the righteous one, and think that Solomon is still creating contrast between the evil and the righteous. But there's no way to read verse 12 without concluding that the righteous one is God. 
It has to be God because I don't care how righteous any human being is. They don't have the ability to look into the house of the wicked. And the word house here may not just mean the physical structure in which the family lives. It may also mean their continuing generations, their children, their grandchildren. But God has the ability to consider, to look into the generations of a wicked one. The righteous one, God, considers the house of the wicked, turning the wicked to ruin. And again, I don't care what righteous person you're talking about. They don't have the ability to turn wicked people to ruin. Only God can do that. So I'm convinced that that verse is talking about God. But that also shows you that these verses that we've been looking at so far, where we've been talking about death, the pursuit of death, the assembly of the dead. And I said to you, this is talking about ultimate things, eternal things, eternal life versus eternal death. That idea is sort of solidified by the knowledge that verse 12 is talking about God because it is God who is turning the wicked man ultimately to ruin. It is God who can look at the family, at the household, who can look at the wicked and then bring judgment on them. And not only is that not an ability any human has, it's not an ability that the Bible even allows us to have. Instead, we're told, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will recompense. So since God takes credit for, I will make everything right, I will judge the wicked, I will reward the righteous, verse 12 can only be talking about God, and ultimately that it's God who's going to turn the wicked man to ruin. Verse 13. Again, this is what a wicked man would be like. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. I think even if the people assembling these Proverbs didn't do it intentionally, I think providentially these two verses kind of go together. Because if it is God who is the righteous one who considers the house of the wicked and then turns the wicked to ruin, then it is also God who is going to bring about this ultimate justice where a man who has been unkind to the poor his whole life is going to end up crying himself and he's not going to be answered. It's not going to be responded to. I think, again, New Testament concept, Jesus talking about the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. The rich man ending up in fires of torment. And crying out and saying, just have Lazarus dip his finger in just a little water, just to put it on my tongue, just to release me from this torment. And the answer was, you know, in your life, you had it all. You had everything. But did you help Lazarus? So here's that same idea again. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself, and he will not be answered. So this is a judgment verse. This is saying that ultimately God is going to mete out proper vengeance, proper judgment. And just because somebody has everything in this lifetime, if it causes them to be proud and haughty and scoffers, if it causes them to be wicked, if it causes them to have a mind of violence, if it causes them to not demonstrate any favor to their neighbor, 
If that's the kind of person they turn out to be, then the time is coming when they are going to be properly judged and there's going to be no help. I mean words like outer darkness. There's going to be no cry for clemency at that point. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Verse 14 then says a gift in secret subdues anger and a bribe in the bosom subdues strong wrath. Now Solomon has already said on several occasions how wrong a bribe is. It's wrong to offer a bribe. It's wrong to take a bribe. So I don't think Solomon is advocating for bribery here. But I think he is stating a simple reality. And the simple reality is, if you're a judge, if you are sitting in judgment over somebody else, if that person were to give you a gift in secret, that's going to subdue their anger. And a bribe in the bosom, which means something you kind of got under your cloak, something you're holding on to secretively, a bribe that not everybody knows about, but you've got it right here in your bosom holding it tight. Well, that's likely to subdue strong wrath. So I don't think that Solomon, again, is advocating for secret gifts and bribery, but he's saying that it is a simple reality that that does happen. A gift in secret subdues anger, and a bribe in the bosom subdues strong wrath. I have tried over the course of the last few weeks of reading this verse and wrestling with this verse, I have tried to find some spiritual application for it. And I'm stumped. I think this is one of those, just a reality kind of statement, a proverb of this is how it actually works. It's not right. It shouldn't be this way. But this is how it happens. I mean, this is the same Solomon who said that a man's gifts will make room for him and bring him before mighty men. He didn't say that's right or wrong. He just said, that's what happens. And so I think this kind of falls into that category. Verse 15. The execution of justice is a joy for the righteous. In other words, righteous people are happy to see the execution of justice, whichever way that goes. If an innocent person is set free, then the person who loves justice, the righteous person, is happy to see the innocent set free. But if a guilty man is punished, is jailed, is taken out of the common society, the righteous person is happy to see that because he wants to see righteousness in the society and he recognizes that the evil person is not bringing about that kind of righteousness. So either way that justice is meted out, the execution of that justice brings joy for the righteous person. But the execution of justice, actual justice, is a terror to the workers of iniquity. Why? Because they're the ones who are going to be found guilty and then are going to be punished. They don't want the execution of justice. They want to slip out from under their prosecution. So a righteous person can see the way that 
a righteous judge works, let's say Solomon in this case, since he was the judge in Israel, a righteous person would watch the judgment of Solomon and he would be happy for it. He would see it all the time. And that is an indication of his own righteousness because he loves to see justice done. But if you see somebody who opposes the execution of proper justice, that's a pretty good indication that person has something to hide. Because he doesn't want justice to be meted out properly because eventually it's going to fall on him. So Solomon is saying that's another one of the places where you can tell the difference between the righteous and the workers of iniquity is how do they love justice. That verse is easier to take to a spiritual extreme. We could take that all the way out to righteous people, God fearing people, people who are inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. Those people love righteousness. They love justice. They love to see God mete out justice because they know that the justice of God is going to result in their salvation and in the proper judgment and vengeance of God against all his enemies. And we're happy to see God mete out his vengeance against his enemies because that's what's right and proper. But then when you try to tell sinners, God-haters, when you try to tell them God is a judge and God is just and God is righteous and holy and he's going to judge all the sinners, they're going to hate that idea. Instead, they're going to try to postulate some kind of all-benevolent, loving God. No, God doesn't mete out justice. No, God doesn't judge people. No, my God is an all-loving God, an omnibenevolent God who loves everybody and saves everybody and gave his son for everybody. Well, why do they do that? Well, because they hate justice. They can't stand the idea of justice because they realize that if justice is a reality and if it's righteous justice, they're going to fall under it. Solomon says the same thing. Whether you're talking about the judgment meted out by a court or whether you're talking about the justice that is meted out by God himself, sinners don't like it. Guilty people don't want it. Evil people don't like it. And that's an indication of who they are. But righteous people, God-fearing people, people who in their wisdom love the standards of God and love the salvation of God and love the knowledge that God in his righteousness is going to be just and justifier because of Christ Jesus. We love that. We love the justice of God. The justice of God makes all the sense in the world to us because we recognize that he, as our redeemer, is also our righteous, holy judge, and that he's going to judge in our favor because he's for us, so who can be against us? But wicked people fear that, deny that, and in their complete self-sufficiency and in their insolence will argue against it and deny it, postulate a God that doesn't exist to try to make themselves feel better. Okay, one more verse. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest with the assembly of the dead. So we started there tonight. And we're kind of ending there tonight. Solomon uses very bleak language. Getting riches through your own chicanery, through your own lies, he says, is the very pursuit of death. 
It's the very pursuit of the judgment of God. It's like, I wonder if God will judge me. Let me make sure. Let me go rob people. Let me lie to people. Let me hurt the poor. Let me do whatever damage I can, whatever violence and evil my little mind can dredge up. Let me go do that in my insolence. Well, that's just pursuing death. And the man who then wanders away from the way that God has laid out, the proper, the upright way, well, that man is walking in a crooked way. And because he's living that way, thinking that way, because he's doing so much damage to other people, not being kind, favorable to his neighbors, looking down on the poor, holding back even though he has the ability to help other people, that's a person who is ultimately going to be resting. In other words, permanently there. That doesn't mean sleeping. It doesn't mean laying in a hammock. It means he is permanently planted in the assembly of the dead. It doesn't get much darker than that. And yet that's what the Bible keeps saying over and over and over and over again. There's two ways. There's two paths. There's the path of righteousness. There's the path of wisdom. There's the path of uprightness. And there's the crooked path of violence, evil, insolence that starts with pride, ego, self-sufficiency. And there's really, in the Bible, no gray area. There's no middle path. The middle path, that's Buddhism. But there's no Christian middle path. You're either the saved in Jesus Christ and you're going to walk like it. You're either redeemed by God and given the knowledge of God through his born-again experience, through his regenerating your heart and mind, opening your eyes, opening your ears, and then you're going to walk like it, or you're walking after your own will, and your own will, as we keep saying, is arrogant and insolent and egocentric and full of nothing but violence and nothing but depravity. And that's the division of all mankind. So if he has chosen you, if he has determined that you are going to be his eternally, if he has changed your mind and your heart, if he has introduced himself to you, walk like it. Amen. Got it? Yes, sir. I have to stop now. The Tylenol's wearing off. The headache is back. I'm, I'm done. Say good night then to the internet congregation. Good night. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.